This forum is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Wednesday, March 30th. I'm Dan Malthrop, I'm the chief executive here, and I'm also a proud member, and I am super excited for this forum today. It is part of our Authors in Conversation series, and today we are going to hear from Luke Eplin. He is the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the world series that changed baseball. We do this series in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture and the John P. Murphy Foundation. And let me just go ahead and get this out of the way. We are supposed to be a nonpartisan, totally objective, neutral platform, but I love this book. <laughs> um, it is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And I'm not the only one. U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown said, if you love baseball, our team is a three-run walk-off homer in Game 7 of the World Series. And if you care about justice, Eplin's book is a crucial lesson in the fight for civil rights in post-World War II Cleveland. And that's exactly it. Through the history of Cleveland baseball in the first half of the century, Eplin tells a fundamentally important story of America and Cleveland. It's the story of overcoming historical, systemic, and structural racial barriers. And at the individual level, it's also a story about economic aspirations, entrepreneurialism, and working around and past individual racial biases that at the time, in the first half of the 20th century, so many people just took for granted and questioned all too infrequently. Luke Eplin is not a Clevelander, which makes this work a little different than it might have been otherwise. And so I'm not, I'm not, it's not an accusation at all. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. Um, but perhaps it's the outsider who can see the beauty in our community that we may have forgotten. At any rate, Mr. Eplin's work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, GQ, Salon, The Daily Beast, and The Paris Review Daily. Our conversation today will be moderated by a great friend of the City Club of Cleveland, the director of the Cleveland Public Library, Felton Thomas, who played ball in his days in high school. It should be noted. If you have questions for Luke or about why uh, Felton's career, baseball career, didn't go further, you can text those questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them into the second half of the program. Those of you here in the audience can, of course, stand up at the mics to ask your question in the second half of the program. But right now, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Felton Thomas and Luke Eplin. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. I can always count on you for a wonderful introduction. <laughs> All right, so I, I am very thankful, and I usually always, anytime, get a chance to acknowledge the folks from the library. I would acknowledge them. I, obviously, I know this is not about the library, but Luke said, please acknowledge the folks at the library, especially uh, Terry Metter, John Skurdick, and a staff member who's not here, Mark Moore, for their help with him in researching the book and being able to put it together. So I wanted to start with that. I also want to acknowledge that we're going to be using the Indians and Guardians name, kind of moving back and forward between the two. So just for that, and we'll also be talking about the Negro Baseball League. So for any folks with sensitivities, we're just putting it out there, letting everybody know um, this is about historical context. Uh, finally, I just wanted to thank Luke for this book. Um, as 
Uh, Dan said, my great love is baseball. I, you know, I love all sports, as all of you know, who see me walking around with different caps all different times of the year. But baseball was always, it was my first love as a young person growing up in the 70s. Um, but one of the things when I got here to Cleveland, I didn't really know the Larry Doby story. Um, and it's one of those things I really kind of ashamed of not understanding his role and what he did for baseball and what the 48 Indians did. And so when I read this book, it was just, it was just, uh, you know, it blew my mind. So when Dan asked me to come here and, and, and be able to interview, I was just like, this is going to be great. And then Luke said, please don't ask me too many questions. So. <laughs> No, so um, I just want to start first. Dan asked it. You're like, you're not from Cleveland, right? I, you're no, from St. Louis. I am. So <laughs> somebody's got to have St. Louis, and you know, somebody's got to rep St. Louis here. But talk about how you you came about the idea of writing this book. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here. This is a real honor. I couldn't have imagined it whenever I was uh, researching this book. And as, uh, as, as he said, this is, is, it's, it's equally uh, uh, important to me because uh, to have a representative of the Cleveland Public Library here. I, when I moved to Cleveland to write this book, um, and I, I think that I should qualify that and say I moved to the Cleveland Public Library to write this book. Um, I feel like I lived there for about uh, two months and um, I was on Terry Metter's floor and uh, he's been a tremendous help to me. So many of people in this room have helped me as well. I'm looking at Jeremy Fedor from the Indians. Bob DiBiasio is here from, uh, from, I mean, I'm sorry, the Guardians. I'm gonna be messing that up and I'm, I apologize. And uh, Vince Guerrero over here, he, uh, he read the book before it was even published and gave me notes and so it's just good to see so many great people that that have really helped me along this journey no author is an island um, I should mention that I am from st. Louis and uh, I grew up as a huge baseball fan my dad had tickets to the uh, season tickets to the st. Louis Cardinals but my grandpa was a fan of the st. Louis Browns at that time in the 1940s uh, st. Louis had two baseball teams the Cardinals and the Browns the Browns were usually terrible. The Cardinals were usually great. For whatever reason, my, my grandpa took the terrible team. Um, so he, he told me a lot of stories growing up. And I think that anybody that knows anything about the Browns knows that Bill Veck was the last owner of the team. And so I would hear these wild stories about, oh, a little person came to the plate. Or, no, you don't understand. The fans managed one game. All of these sorts of things. Yeah. And I was like, what? Who, when did that happen? And so Bill Veck was always kind of an obsession of mine. I read about him when I was, um, I read his autobiography, Veck is in Wreck, when I was a teenager. And then I returned to it as an adult, and I thought to myself, he is the perfect person to center a nonfiction book on. So the intention was to write about Veck and the Browns. Once I started researching uh, his history, I, I saw that he had owned the Cleveland baseball team before then. And it was really while just doing some background research to what I thought was going to be a book about the Browns that I realized that, wait a minute, all these things that we talk about with Bill Beck, fireworks, promotions, all these sorts of things, they pale in comparison to what he did in Cleveland, which is to integrate the American League. And I realized there's the story. And if someone like me, who is a huge baseball fan, doesn't know that story, I imagine there's a lot of people around this country that also don't know it. So that's how I became a Clevelander. Right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who haven't had an opportunity to read the book, it's an amazing um, way he interweaves the story. So 
I want to talk a little bit about how you came about the idea of structuring it between the four individuals that you, you did, Bill Vick, yeah. Bob Feller, uh, Larry Doby, and Satchel Paige, interweaving their stories into one larger um, narrative. How did that come about? It's an interesting thing. A lot of people tell me that this book is about the 1948 Cleveland baseball team, and I've, I have to hold my tongue to correct them, because I really think of this book as a story of four individuals. You've got Bill Veck and Bob Feller, and then you've got Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. I went into the New York Public Library archives, and they have bound editions of the Sporting News, which is an old baseball publication. It's still around, but it used to be dedicated solely to baseball. And they had them all bound up, and so you could check out them by the year and almost read them like a novel. So I checked out 46, 47, 48, and I read through the entirety of all those years. And I was noticing that you had these sort of Bill Veck and Bob Feller, Larry Doby and Satchel Paige, two white men, two black men, and they each represented something larger than themselves, particularly on the issue of race. You had Vec as the more sort of progressive owner who was sort of gung-ho about integrating. Feller, who was a champion barnstormer. This was at a time whenever after seasons people, uh, ball players would sort of get together on these tours and tour the country to places where people didn't get to see Major League Baseball playing exhibition games. They called it barnstorming. Bob Feller was one of the chief uh, 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 players who did this at the time. And so he had no problem playing against players like Satchel Paige or, or the others. But he was very sort of hesitant about saying whether or not black players would have what it needed to, to, to make it into the Major League Baseball. So I thought of him as more of a traditionalist mindset. Then you had Larry Doby and Satchel Paige, both players from the Negro Leagues, but th they were 17 years apart in age. So I thought they represented different generations of that, that Negro League, Satchel Paige being the, the last generation that didn't get to go into Major League Baseball. Um, uh, because of the, the color line that segregated it, and Larry Doby of the generation of Jackie Robinson, of the first pioneers that come in. So I thought if you'd put these four men together and in tension with each other, you could represent all the sort of aspects of integration that were happening at that time, from the progressive to the traditional. And so that's why I centered it on those four individuals, and I wanted their stories not to be separate, where you had a chapter on Feller, chapter on Vac, chapter on Doby, but to interweave, because these men were overlapping, sometimes directly as in Feller and Page, and sometimes their experiences rhymed. Like Larry Doby and, and Bob Feller served in the exact same part of the South Pacific when they were in World War II. We don't have any indication that they ever crossed paths there, but they were in the same place. And so like these men were sort of swirling about each other before they finally came together in Cleveland. So an interesting point is, a, kind of a starting point really for you within the book, is the aftermath of World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and really the lives and how they kind of led into all four men really leading them to 48. You want to talk a little bit about World War II? Yeah, so the original intention I had of the book for the structure was I was going to start it that the moment that Larry Doby goes from the Newark Eagles, where he played in the Negro Leagues, to Cleveland. He literally does this overnight. He plays a game on July 4th, 1947, boards a train that night, and then he goes to Chicago, where the Cleveland baseball team is playing the White Sox. And the very next day, he is a member of the Indians. And so it's this tremendously interesting journey that is quite different from the Jackie Robinson's, who spends a year in minor league baseball. So I thought it would be quite an interesting thing to start the book there. But as I'm researching, I'm noticing that 
All of these men, except for Satchel Paige, served in World War II, and they all have formative experiences in World War II that really shape what then they do in the post-war era, whether you have Bill Veck and his injury that leads to the amputation of his leg, Larry Doby going into the Navy and experiencing sort of government-sanctioned segregation for the first time in its full-blown force, or Bob Feller volunteering the day after Pearl Harbor to go into the Navy and losing four years of his prime and going and seeing just tremendous battles that sort of really shapes his outlook when he comes back. And I realize you can't tell this story unless you start with them as uh, in, in, in World War II. Um, and really, you can't tell the story of post-war America without sort of seeing the horrors and the sort of formative experiences that all these young people are going through at the time. And so the first third of the book is really dedicated to the war and what happens there. And I think you do an unbelievable job of speaking to them as men. Um, they are all seen in many ways as heroes, but you talk a little bit more about who their, their struggles as well. And the one common um, thing around all four men, they're all lonely. Uh, loneliness is a big part of this. Could you speak to that? It's a huge theme of the book. Um, it affects each character in quite different ways. I think that Satchel Paige is somebody who grows up in the Deep South, goes into the Negro Leagues when, in the 1920s, and sort of builds himself up into a one-man franchise. He's this sort of has a tremendous entrepreneurial sense about him and sort of recognizes that you could build a persona that could excite audiences and sort of you know, get you more than what an average player could get. And so he becomes this sort of barnstorming figure that can go around and, and just sell out places and get cuts of the gate. But it's a very lonely life. A lot of the times he's just on the road by himself. He's kind of an isolated figure because of how famous he is. And I think that Bob Feller gets affected by that a little bit too. Bob Feller is somebody whose origin story, I think, is unsurpassed in sports. He grows up on a farm in Iowa. His dad senses a tremendous ability in him from a very early age, so he clears out a portion of their farm to build a baseball diamond. And Feller, through sort of happenstance, makes it into Cleveland when he's only a high school junior. In his very first start in Major League Baseball, again, age 17, he ties the American League record in strikeouts. Four starts after that, he ties the Major League record in strikeouts. He becomes so famous that the next year, his high school graduation is broadcast live from coast to coast on NBC radio. It's an incredible sort of story, but it's also isolating. It sort of takes him into, it takes him into a realm that his peers are not. And so Feller sort of has to deal with the sort of pressures and all that that, that comes with being in that realm. And then I think the most lonely character is Larry Doby, who is, for the first year that he's in Cleveland, the only black player uh, on, the, on the team. And so he is sort of shunted off into segregated accommodations a lot of the times. He can't go to the same restaurant as his teammates. He is dealing with sort of burdens and slights and abuses that are unknown to his peers on that team. And so he's kind of suffering them in silence. And Doby would often talk about how some of the worst things that, that he would deal with were after a game where he doesn't play particularly well or where he gets a particular amount of abuse. He can't just go out with his teammates and sort of have a beer or something like that and forget about that. He has to go back to sort of a segregated accommodation and sit there by himself and stew in it all night. And so it's not like he has things to take his mind off of it. 
Um, and so that sort of loneliness in particular with Dovey is something that he himself talked about for decades afterwards. It really sort of penetrated to his core and affected him throughout the rest of his life. One of the things that, and I want to kind of transition from the four to the middle part of the book, which kind of deals with kind of um, the live, the um, baseball as the common ground or the space where the teams, the major league teams and the Negro league teams are playing in the same spaces, yeah. right? Um, uh, one of the folks that is, is spoken about within this uh, sub-character is a woman named Epa Manley, <laughs> right? Who owns a Negro baseball team and is a force, right? Um, talk a little bit about her and what you found out about um, like what ended up being the end of the Negro baseball team. Okay, Effa Manley was something that uh, was a revelation to me. I had no idea who she was, and then once I started researching her, I had to stop myself from writing about her. I have 20 pages cut from this book about Effa Manley, and at one point I went to my editor and said, okay, I, I know the book was pitched as a story about four people, but could it be five? <laughs> like, she is incredible. She and her husband, Abe, buy the Newark Eagles, and, um, and basically Abe is, is he, he ran numbers games, and he, he sort of enjoys being around the team. He's a, he's a good scout for talent, but it is Effa Manley who is running the show there. She's doling out the money, she's setting the schedules, she's going to league meetings in the Negro Leagues and sort of representing the team, and she is a force to try to get the more sort of centralized power in the Negro League, to try to fight against uh, uh, white owners that are either trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to not give them the money that they deserve, or later on, Branch Rickey does not compensate Negro League owners for the players that he takes, such as Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb. He just says that the Negro Leagues are, 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 in his words, a racket, and that these contracts are flimsy, and so he can just sort of pick away. And Effa Manley is extremely fierce in fighting back against that, because she recognizes that if they don't get sort of compensation for the players that they nurtured, and that they trained, and that they went through the process of discovering and sort of bringing up, then the Negro Leagues are, were going to collapse. So she was tremendously important in really sort of bringing attention to these issues, so that whenever Bill Veck goes about looking for a player and, and identifies Larry Doby, the first thing that she says to Bill Veck whenever Veck calls is, what are you going to give me for him? She's not going to give away Larry Doby for free like Branch Rickey got. She was a tremendous power in, in, at that time. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, there have been several biographies written about her, one that came out last year, and I really encourage people to look more about her life. Um, kind of a forgotten figure. So there is this um, transition within the book of folks kind of moving in and, and, and build back, right? Yeah. Really kind of pushing forward um, uh, Larry Doby into uh, the major leagues and the effect that it had on baseball, right? Because now this has been done in not one but two uh, 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 teams. You write about Bill Beck as a, not only as an entrepreneur, but as some, also a kind of a circus character, right? You know, right? He, he's a, he, 
talk a little bit about Vec because he's a very, very interesting character in the fact that he creates what is what really changes baseball, but he also was he changed baseball in so many other ways. There's so much to be said about a character named Bill Vec. I think a lot of people sort of take him as sort of the P.T. Barnum of baseball, and I don't believe, I don't think of him that way. I think that, you know, P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute, and Vec did not think in, in those terms. Vec had this sort of idea at the time, which was uh, radical, that baseball was a form of theater that had room for both competitive play on the fields and sort of amusing sideshows on the side, and that these two things did not have to be in tension with each other, but could coexist. And so you could have fireworks, you could have races, you could have crazy giveaways and things like that. And it would not only entertain fans, but it would sort of pique interest in the club. And so you would have people that were not normally sort of into baseball being like, well, I can go there and still have a good time, or who knows what's going to happen, it could be really interesting. And while they're there to see that entertainment, they then will have to be kind of forced to watch the baseball game on the field, so it can cultivate fans among people that would not have thought that they were going to be baseball fans. And so it was a way of sort of building the base of the city organically. And a lot of owners at the time thought that any sort of hippodrome stuff or circus stuff was denigrating the, you know, sort of the national pastime and that this was not dignified or something like that. And Vec just didn't have any, any time for that. He was, he was not doing this simply to put on a circus. He was doing this for very calculated reasons that paid off with the fact that he shattered all attendance records in 1948, basically across the board, um, whether it was in the postseason or in the regular season, night game, day game, whatever. It was just the entire city responded to what he was doing. And I think that this idea of Vec as the, the father of the modern stadium experience is a good one. Like if you go to a Cavaliers game, they're playing tonight, you're going to see t-shirt cannons. You're going to see dancers and all this sort of stuff. Anytime you see that, you should think about Bill Vec, because that is what he did. But at the same time, I think that even that does a disservice to his legacy because, yes, that is extremely important. But he was an incredible baseball mind. He took Cleveland, the, they were in sixth place in 1946. They had a pretty good base of players. But he wheeled and dealed the Indians to a championship within a year and a half, basically. And he did this not only through shrewd trades, like getting Joe Gordon and some others, and by signings, but he did it by looking in places where other people were not looking, the Negro Leagues. I mean, signing Doby is one thing, but imagine being Bill Vec and signing Satchel Paige in the middle of a pennant run. Satchel Paige was 42 years old. To put that into perspective, Albert Pujols, who was just signed by the Cardinals yesterday, is 42. He is the oldest player in Major League Baseball this upcoming season. I don't think anybody thinks Albert Pujols has much left to him, but like Satchel Paige, uh, he was just getting started. That guy could have just kept <laughs> pitching. Um, but I mean, just imagine the sort of courage it took to, to do that and then to give him the sort of confidence to go out and pitch in these, these, these you know, crucial games of that season. He was a baseball mind that was top-notch at the time. And I think that that sometimes can get overlooked in this idea of him as like a circus guy. Um, but he, he combined all of it. He was the complete package. And then so to Satchel Paige, one of the things, I mean, as a, someone who loved baseball, you would hear about Satchel Paige, but the stories you tell about Satchel Paige are just incredible, <laughs> where folks literally would stop what they were doing to come visit where we played, whether yeah. it was black audiences or white audiences. 
um, and literally he helped them set records. It's amazing. Whenever he, I mean, when he was in the Negro Leagues, they would say that uh, he was the only player who could get a crowd at the edge of their seats simply by walking onto the field. Just like the way that he sort of slow walked with that sort of poker face, it just sent crowds into a frenzy. He just had this, he sort of had this sort of innate knowledge of how to excite crowds and he used it to his tremendous, not only, um, not only sort of personal advantage, but financial advantage. He, he understood the worth of his name, his, his image, and he certainly cashed in on it a lot. And in 1948, whenever Bilvec signed him to the Cleveland club, I mean, it, it's, I think somebody said it was like, it would be like if you signed Paul Bunyan. He was just kind of a legend. And like, people wanted to come out and just see, is he real? Because I talked to Eddie Robinson, who was the only living member of the, 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 the Indian squad from 1948 at the time. He's since passed away. And he said that even if a white person had not uh, seen a Negro League game or seen black players play at that time, they knew who Satchel Paige was. He was just a name that was in the American bloodstream. And so whenever he finally made it over into Major League Baseball, it was just like people couldn't wait to see him. In Chicago, where he pitched one of the games in August 1948, fans were so eager to see him, they literally ripped out the turnstiles. The, the stadium held 50,000 people, more than 75,000 were in there, and Bill Beck later said there wasn't a place in that stadium that wasn't covered with flesh. It was just everybody was there. And you have to imagine this other thing. Satchel Paige at that time was 42. A lot of people thought he was much older. Um, imagine if, as a 42-year-old, you imagine that somebody has passed their athletic prime. What if he comes into the league and gets shelled? Then the legend is deflated. I mean, it was a huge personal risk on Paige's part, even, to finally come in after, you know, he is past his prime. But for him to do what he did and, up, and uphold that legend, I mean, we'll never see another figure like that. He was, he was incredible. I mean, what can you say? <laughs> so we haven't talked about Feller as much. And what was very interesting to me, uh, hearing the, the Feller uh, kind of legend moving here, was also to hear, kind of see the kind of downfall of Feller as, as he went through it. And his slump at the end um, kind of spoke to the long suffering of Cleveland fans. And, and you speak about how Cleveland fans at one point in time during slump would, would boo the Indians just because they assumed we were going to lose, right? <laughs> you know, we were in first place at the time. Yeah. Speak a, speak a little bit to the Cleveland psychology of our fans here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such an interesting thing, because like, uh, you, you saw in the paper that, uh, that, that Cleveland, I can't remember who said this, I think it was Shirley Povich of the Washington Post, that if Cleveland was in first place, you knew it was still spring. Um, and that was sort of uh, that was sort of the attitude. And so during the 1948 season, whenever the, the the Indians just come charging out of the gates and they're they're in first place through June, the fans are reflexively booing the Indians, even in games they're winning, in anticipation of the fall. It's not like they're playing poorly. They're just like, yeah, but this is just making the heart. This is going to make the heartbreak be that much worse, and so that's how it is. And Feller really becomes the target because when he comes back from the war, 
He does these elaborate barnstorming tours where he rents out planes, he teams up with Satchel Paige, he plays in stadiums, and he pitches just constantly through October and into November. And he becomes very invested in making money off of his name. He gets a radio show, he writes his autobiography, he, he does a newspaper column, he advertises this and that. And so whenever Feller starts to kind of falter in 1947, and particularly in 1948, fans believe that he's too focused on his outside investments and they start to really boo him um, whenever he is uh, whenever he's 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 suffering and it is kind of like he he starts the book in my book as this sort of boy wonder all-american hero that continues through the war and then he has a sort of precipitous downfall and the way that I've structured the book is that I start with Bob Feller and I end with kind of Larry Doby and I wanted to see, as one goes down, the other kind of goes up. And I think that we kind of look at the Bob Feller story, that sort of farm to majors thing, and this like amazing narrative that was told across the country and that every schoolboy would have known as like the quintessential baseball story. But Larry Doby's story is as improbable, is as amazing. He is somebody who goes directly from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. He completely flops his first season in, in Major League Baseball in 1947. He bats 156. He only starts one game. He does not look like a major leaguer. I think any other owner except for Vec probably would have cut him. They move him to the outfield, a position he's never played. He has to learn it on the fly in 1948. And he turns around and bats 300 and hits a home run in the World Series that really kind of puts the Indians over the top. It is as improbable as the Bob Feller story. We just don't recognize it because there's a few more steps in there. And so it's like, it's like you, ha you start off with the sort of quintessential white baseball story and then you end with the quintessential sort of black baseball story at that time. And so there's this sort of great role reversal that is happening there. But you also speak to the fact that, and speaking on Larry Doby, is the fact that his story just gets lost somewhere. And, yeah. and part of it is his personality, right? And, and part of it is the fact that there was a, a thought that there was going to be a significant change coming out of 48. And yeah. it does happen, but it doesn't happen right away. Speak to that. Yeah, Doby is a very introverted individual. I think that I said in the book that he seemed to submit to interviews like, a, like someone settling into a dentist chair. Um, he did not enjoy them, um, and uh, he didn't have that sort of... Um, he, I would say that he and sort of Satchel Paige were such opposites. Satchel Paige knew how to sort of present himself to the media, how to tell stories, how to sort of, you know... Um, uh, to, to sort of advance himself uh, as, as a sort of persona and, and, and superstar. Dobie uh, was, was, was quite shy and, and diffident and other sorts of things like that. Um, but it's also just a natural thing that as time goes by, we remember the first and the second gets relegated to a trivia question. And the, I thought that the fact that we know so much about Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey, rightly so, is because we still know their narrative. We know how Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson. We know the sort of dictates that Branch Rickey put upon him. We know the sort of how Robinson struggled and all of these sorts of stories that are still associated with his life. And what I thought was what was missing with Larry Doby, at least outside of Cleveland, I'm sure a lot of Clevelanders do know his story quite well, was that we know of him as a second black baseball player, but we don't have a good narrative attached to him. And so what I really wanted to do in this book was write it in a very sort of novelistic, 
vivid way so that this narrative is revived and to show that this narrative that was happening concurrently with Jackie Robinson is just as meaningful as the Robinson narrative in Brooklyn. It's just different. And, and we have room in our culture for both of these narratives. We don't just have to have the one narrative in, of integration. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was a way to sort of, I guess, vivify the narrative. So we're going to be turning it over to questions. I just want to, to, to ask you one last question. It's about your writing style. We talked about this uh, in the green room of, about the fact that um, for all of you who like this great writing, this book is great writing. It's very illustrative and illustrative. And I was saying, almost it's like you wrote like they used to write in the 40s, <laughs> yeah. like you're, right? Because yeah. before TV, the writers, the journalists had to write in this style to really show everybody all of the details and all of that. And I really yeah. appreciated about that, but you, you had a great answer to that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I. I, um, I fell in love with the writing, first of all, because it is so vivid and flowery and all this. And these writers were writing at a time in the 1940s before television. And uh, so they really did need to sort of capture the feel of games and dugouts and things like that in a way that maybe writing writers today don't have to do with, you know, clip shows and television and all that sort of thing. And so I was finding myself injecting more and more of their writing into the book, and then I was finding myself writing like them. And, uh, and it kind of infected my, uh, it, it sort of infected the way that I, I wrote, but it's so fun. Um, there, were so, there were so many great writers in Cleveland at the time, a guy named Gordon Cobbledick who wrote for The Plain Dealer. My favorite was a guy named Franklin Lewis who wrote for the Cleveland Press at the time. He, um, he was just a knockout writer. Um, but I mean, Cleveland was blessed with four newspapers at the time, and it's so much fun to go into those archives. There's they're such vivid writing. So I wanted to sort of honor them by, by mimicking their style. That's great. So mm. now? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Luke Applin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And, and of course, our good friend Felton Thomas. And now we are about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you're here in person, please raise your hand and remain seated until a staff member indicates it's your turn to step up to the microphone. Uh, looks like we've got our first question right over here. Corrigan, get over there. Um, and our live stream viewers, please tweet your questions at the City Club or text them to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794. And we will work them into the program. Go ahead. Uh, thanks for writing this book. Hey, Just super. Um, a couple names that are touched on, and I just wanted to know what stories about them you had to leave out. Joe, Joe Gordon, who in a sense was brought to Cleveland by Belvec too, and was, at least in the part I'm recalling, was one of the people who was a little more open to Larry right out the box. Yeah. And then Harrison Dillard and the role he played, the native Clevelander who yeah. supported Larry. Yeah, so Joe Gordon, um, he was somebody that was brought over by Vec in a trade for Allie Reynolds. It seems like there's still debate on whether or not that was a good trade. Um, <laughs> uh, 
he was somebody who was older at the time. He'd already won an MVP. Um, he was actually older than the manager, player manager Lou Boudreaux. And so Boudreaux really relied on him to sort of take care of like player personnel issues, if there were sort of interpersonal things that were going on between the players. And none more so than Larry Doby struggled to integrate himself into the club. There were a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there were some members of, Cleve of the Cleveland club that did not welcome Larry Doby, refused to shake his hand, um, were sort of out and out, uh, you know, either indifferent or hostile toward him. And Joe Gordon was somebody who really embraced Doby, shook his hand vigorously, would often on the field play catch with Doby, was really sort of somebody who, who uh, on the train would, would slide in next to him and sort of talk to Doby during these trips. Uh, Doby would later say that, that, that he was the most sort of instrumental player, or player during that first year. So um, yeah, it just seemed like a man without, without sort of prejudice in that sense. Joe, uh, Larry Doby also credited Jim Hegan, Bob Lemon, and another coach by the name of Bill McKechnie um, as being people who really helped him through there. Harrison Diller didn't come on to the Indians until 1949. Bill Vex signed him to be in the public relations department. But I did get to talk to Harrison before he passed away. And uh, Doby, at the time in 1948, lived with this man named Arthur Grant. He was an extra Negro leaguer for the Cleveland Buckeyes, um, who then became a sanitation worker. And he was very well known among sort of the black community of Cleveland. And uh, I talked to his daughters, he's since passed away, and um, they said that it became sort of a gathering house for Cleveland athletes, like Jesse Owens was always there, Harrison Dillard was always there, Jackie Robinson would pass through if he was in Cleveland. That would be just sort of where a lot of the black community would gather. And Larry Doby and his wife lived on the second floor of, of Arthur Grant's house during that time. So Harrison Dillard was instrumental in sort of uh, introducing Larry Doby to the community and helping him out there. Um, so, you mentioned Doby's struggles in 47, but it seemed like he wasn't getting regular playing time. He'd go days on end without playing and then maybe pinch hit. Was, was this because Boudreaux thought he was too green, or was it a racial, uh, were the racial overtones in Boudreaux's lack of playing time for Doby? It's a, it's a, it's a complex, an complex answer. Larry Doby was a second baseman in the Negro Leagues. When he comes to Cleveland, obviously you have Joe Gordon already at second, Lou Boudreau at, at, at short, so there's no room for him there. Ken Keltner is, 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 on, is on third, so obviously he's stationed. First base, you had Eddie Robinson and Les Fleming splitting playing time. Eddie Robinson at that time was 26 years old. He'd been through the minor leagues. He'd been through the war. This was really his shot to prove that he was now a full-fledged major leaguer, and he was struggling pretty bad. He went to Lou Boudreau. Uh, about two weeks before Doby was signed because Boudreaux had benched him several times during the 1947 season and said, Lou, what's going on? And Boudreaux said, don't you worry about it. You're our first baseman. You're going to be our first baseman. Everything is fine. Then Larry Doby comes in. And Doby, in his only his second game on the Indians, uh, gets slotted into first base for that game. Eddie Robinson, at the time, not only will not give Larry Doby his first base glove because Doby doesn't have one, he quits the team on the spot. He said, if that's what's going to happen, if I'm going to lose playing time to Larry Doby now, I'm out. And he doesn't dress for the game. He stays in the locker room throughout that game. Bill McKechnie has to come down and basically talk Eddie Robinson off the ledge and say, look, 
you know, you don't want this to happen because people are going to think you did this because Larry Doby is black and that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. And Eddie Robson thinks about it, dresses, comes up about midway through the game and all the Indians pat him on the back. The very next day, all the newspapers basically kind of take Eddie Robinson's side. And it's an interesting thing because Boudreaux had said before that series that he was going to put Larry Doby at first base throughout the year. Larry Doby never plays first base after that. And so I think that I don't have any sort of way of knowing this, but it does seem that Boudreaux sort of sensed that you take away playing time from another player for Larry Doby and you could risk a mutiny going on here. And so um, the way that Vex sort of integrated the team by not sort of prepping players and by just sort of sh you know, shunting Larry Doby onto the team um, led to some, there were a lot of people that thought Doby should have gone to the minors to pay his due. There were people that were fighting for playing time. And I think that Boudreau, um, again, I, I wasn't able to speak to Boudreau, but it does seem like he, he, he assesses the situation. And then the, the next week he says, I thought I was going to play Doby at first, but now I don't think I'm going to. And so um, I think he recognizes the sort of uh, perils that could happen by moving Doby too quickly into the Indians lineup. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to first thank you for your book and my senses, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is this story was really never fully covered or covered in Ken Burns' baseball, which is considered like the, uh, the best of what's been happening so far. But my question really relates to impact and what can happen in the future. I got to play in the Cleveland Sandlots in the 70s, and my memory was, at least for the Cleveland Plain Dealer League, it was very integrated. And you had a lot of black-owned businesses who backed teams. So the league in Cleveland had a history of not integrating, but that's a place you just found tremendous integration, and that's kind of been lost. So I'm hopeful. Do you see how we could uh, impact and get uh, minority youth and city youth to see baseball as an opportunity? Because as I tell people, there's nine spots on a team in basketball. There's just five on one ball, mm -hmm. and you could have very diverse skills and still play baseball. So I'm hopeful this dialogue and the, the city can really become a hotbed again citywide for baseball. Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak about Major League Baseball's efforts to reach out to minority communities. I know that they, that they do have a lot of programs in place to do so. If we're going to relate it to my book, I will say this, that um, at the time, baseball was really the sport where you could make a good living. Uh, football was just coming up. Basketball was in its infancy. And it's interesting to me to note that Larry Doby, grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, and he went to an integrated high school, and he was the captain of both the baseball, basketball, and football team. He was a tremendous football player. His uh, team won the state championship. I talked to one of his high school teammates who's still alive, and he said for all, of, for all the good that Doby was on football and baseball, basketball was his best sport. They said that at a time where people were just shoot, shoot, shooting set shots, Larry Doby had moves. Larry Doby was flying through the air like Elgin Baylor. And, uh, and so I, I wonder if Larry Doby had come up, you know, 20, 30 years afterwards, if he would have chosen baseball. Um, from what I understand, a lot of people didn't think it was his, his best sport. And so, you, you know, you, you now have, uh, you now have uh, more competition for, uh, for, for athletes. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I think that Doby chose baseball simply because that was where he could make a living. Um, but apparently... According to this, these teammates, at least, it was his third best sport. 
So, yeah, and I mean, he was so amazing in high school that Patterson High School, uh, or Eastside High, where he went to high school, um, convened a, uh, a, a sort of testimonial dinner in his honor when he was a senior. They wrote poems about him. They, they, they had music written about Larry Doby. They gave him a gold watch. I mean, he was just recognized as such an extraordinary person. And it's so interesting that, you know, that would happen, considering that Eastside High maybe had, in his class, 10 African-American students out of a class of hundreds. And so for them to do that for sort of an African-American player was, was truly extraordinary. And it speaks to just how amazing of an athlete Larry Doby was. Hey, Luke, we've got a text question. Yeah. If you could please tell the story of Satchel Paige's tryout. <laughs> um, Okay, so in 1948, the Indians, the Indians are, are sort of in, in first place, but they're, they're, they're struggling. Bill Beck is trying to get pitching all he, all he can. He hires Abe Saperstein, 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 however you pronounce it, who was the founder of the Harlem Globetrotters, and um, he sort of hires him as a scout to sort of look through the Negro Leagues. Um, after one game in which the Indians got particularly shelled, Beck was like, what are we going to do? And Saperstein is like, it's time. And it's, we need to bring in Page. And so they, they call him in, and it's, uh, it's uh, Bill Vec wakes Lou Boudreaux up from, from his sleep one morning and says, come to the stadium. I've got this prospect I want you to see. Boudreaux is like, just have someone else look at it. And he's like, oh, no, you want to be here. And so Boudreaux goes there, and he's expecting to see like a 20-year-old, but he says he's a 42-year-old. And it's Satchel Paige. And can, if you can imagine this, he's probably the most famous baseball player that you can imagine. He's in his 40s. He's been proving himself his whole life, and he's now having to try out in front of nobody, an entirely empty stadium, and then a couple of, uh, you know, the Indians brain trust over here. And apparently, according to legend, he leans into his satchel pageness. And so he takes out a handkerchief, folds it into eight, tells Boudreaux, put this wherever you want to on the plate. So Boudreaux puts it on the inside corner. Page says pitch after pitch as it. He moves it over to the outside corner, pitch after pitch. Boudreaux grabs a bat, comes in against him. Remember, Boudreaux leads. Boudreaux wins the MVP in 48. Boudreaux is at the height of his powers. Boudreaux tries to hit him, pops a few flies, slaps a few grounders, nothing really resembling a hit. He throws down his bat, and he says to Beck, you got it. We need, we need him. And so... <laughs> Yeah, and I think the most poignant scene is that afterward, um, in the locker room, Bill Veck himself comes over to Page with the jersey, and he not only says, you know, we need to talk about your contract, he apologizes that this hadn't happened earlier in his career. Uh, Luke, this is what you call a softball question, but hey. I understand <laughs> the uh, movie rights have been optioned and a script is being written, even though there's no guarantee we'll ever see it on the big screen. <laughs> Hope does spring eternal, despite the Cleveland psychology. So I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about who should play Bill Vec, if you've got a, a say in the casting. Okay, so yes, the movie rights have been sold. Um, they're writing a script. So apparently, <laughs> so, um, so apparently in the 1980s, Bill Murray, who is a huge baseball guy, had been trying to option Vec as in Rec, which is Bill Vec's autobiography, too, and no studio wanted it. Um, I don't know why, but he wanted to play Bill Vec. And man, he would have been awesome to play Bill Vec. I think he has the perfect sort of, you need an imp to play Bill Vec. You need somebody with a little bit of, you know, just, uh, just mischief about him. So um, 
I don't know because you know Bill Veck was 32 when he bought the Indians, so it can't be someone like Tom Hanks or something like that. It's got to be a, a younger man who sort of exudes both extreme charisma and extreme mischievousness. So you got me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I don't work in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, who's going to play Satchel Paige? I mean, gosh. <laughs> Denzel, maybe. <laughs> All right, we've got another text question. So many consider the use of sports as a platform to fight for black civil rights to be this new cancel culture thing. Think Kaepernick and LeBron wearing an I can't breathe tee. How does the influence of these players differ from or pave the path for the current civil rights fights of athletes today? Oh boy, that's, that's a good question. Um, the thing that I always talk about with Kaepernick is that um, Jackie Robinson at the end of his life in the 1970s wrote a book called I Never Had It Made. It is a tremendous book. It's really one of the great sports autobiographies that, that has ever been written and I highly recommend it. He starts the book off with a scene from the 70s where he is, he's brought to a Los Angeles Dodgers game and he is going to be honored there. And the national anthem starts playing and Jackie Robinson realizes that he can't stand up for it. He remains seated throughout the entire time. He realizes that, that all the things that he had to go through, which basically caused sort of a premature death because of it, basically, I, I, don't, I think that that's probably not uncontroversial to say, he can't stand up, and uh, that's the sort of thing of, uh, of, of, of the, the beginning. He's, and he says that for all of these, these cheers and uh, everybody here, I never had it made. And uh, I always think about that with Kaepernick. What Kaepernick did was not uh, singular to, to him. Jackie Robinson was talking about that decades ago. And I mean, in this book, you have that scene of Larry Doby um, hitting the home run in game four of the 1948 World Series, Steve Gromek, the pitcher at the time, afterward in the locker room, embracing him, and just almost like cheek to cheek right there. And that, 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 that picture goes off across newspapers across the country. It's a very unusual sight in the country at the time to see something like that. And African-American newspapers in particular uh, write very great, beautiful pieces about the symbolic nature of that picture, showing what can happen if places integrate like that. But then the epilogue, epilogue of my book shows that when Larry Doby went home to Patterson, New Jersey, after winning the World Series, they held this big parade for him. They gave him a key to the city. The mayor talked about him. Doby got $6,000 for winning the World Series from his share, and he and his wife decide they're going to buy their first house. Nobody will sell to him. And it doesn't matter that he's this tremendous hero. Everybody knows he's a tremendous hero. Nobody wants to live next to him. And so... Doby says in, uh, in January of 1949, a mere three months after winning the World Series, I feel more like a hero in Cleveland than I do here in my hometown. And then he goes to spring training in March. Uh, probably, you know, the, 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 the big thing that puts him over the top to win the World Series was his, his play. He's still in a segregated accommodation. He still can't stay with his teammates. And Doby just says, the clock turned back. So you see this sort of cyclical nature happening uh, in sports throughout our history. I guess it's my turn. I'm Sal Russo, senior, formerly from Russo's Stop and Shop Supermarket. Cool. 
and I'm lucky enough to be uh, Dan's father-in-law. Oh, cool. Nice. <laughs> so Dan said, be careful. <laughs> so for Christmas, he gave me your book. Dan, thank you. And I also, <laughs> I also got a, a, a Christmas gift of the, God, the book that, uh, how they made the movie The Godfather. Nice. <laughs> and if, if you guys are looking for another good book. <laughs> so I started with The Godfather being Italian, of course. And uh, I couldn't put that book down. And Dan kept asking me, did you start Luke's book about the 1948 Cleveland Indians? And I said, no, not yet, Dan. I got to finish this other book. But once I started it, I couldn't put it down. There's so many things in there that I didn't know. I was eight years old, and I kind of, my father liked baseball, but I never went to any of the games, never went, and I, you know, I kind of held it against him for a while until I got older and I realized that that wasn't his priority. He was working too hard to, to be successful. But anyway, this is a point of interest, not really a question. A couple of nights ago, uh, well, first of all, how many of you, raise your hands, watch Jeopardy? Mm. All right. You probably saw this, but a couple of nights ago, the, the final question was, who was the black player that was instrumental in the Cleveland Indians, you know, winning the World Series, which they haven't won since? Uh. And, of course, everybody got the answer, including me, because I read your book, Luke. Yeah. I, said, I wish they were to reference my book. I said, <laughs> I said, that's Satchel Page. And all the three contestants had the right answer, including myself. But thanks for writing the book, because yeah. I couldn't put that book down either. Cool. And if you guys don't buy that book today at half price, you're missing the deal of your life. I will just say, uh, uh, based on, on that, that um, I, I've, I've never been to a baseball game here in Cleveland, which is like kind of hard, I mean, a little sheepish for me to admit this, but I can't imagine what it must have been like to be in that municipal stadium with 80, 80 85,000 people in that place. It, I mean, that 1948 season, it, it, I, I spent so much time trying to imagine what that must have felt like. And I remember asking Eddie Robinson, what did it feel like to play in front of 86,000 people? And he himself couldn't put it into words. So it, uh, yeah, it's, it, it boggles the mind. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum in one of our, in our Authors in Conversation series featuring Luke Eplin. He's the author of Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series. It's available for purchase here in our lobby, thanks to our booksellers at a cultural exchange. Moderating our conversation today was the inimitable Felton Thomas, Jr., Executive Director and CEO of the Cleveland Public Library. We welcome guests at tables hosted by the Cleveland Public Library, uh, Cuyahoga Community College, Ohio Guidestone, Senior Old Guardians, hello fellas, and Wycliffe High School. Thank you all for being with us today. 
Coming up next at the City Club this Friday, we will hear from Mary Schmidt Campbell. She's president of Spelman College, an HBCU located in Atlanta, as many of you know, a global leader in the education of black women. She'll be in conversation with IdeaStream Public Media's Jenny Hamill. Tickets are still available for that forum, and you can learn more and purchase tickets at cityclub.org. By the way, as you may have heard, our partners at IdeaStream Public Media have moved their news and information programming from 90.3 FM to 89.7. If you've been a little confused on the radio, that's where you can find them. Um, so starting this Friday at April 1st, you will find our live Friday Forum broadcast on 89.7, and it's going to be starting 30 minutes earlier at 12 noon. We're grateful to our partners at IdeaStream Public Media for sharing in this 94-year commitment to the live radio broadcast of City Club Forums. 94 years. I, think, I just think that's wild. You can learn more about this change at cityclub.org, and that brings us to the end of our forum today. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Director Thomas. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club. It's been so good to share this with you all today. Our forum is now adjourned. <laughs>